For me, fashion is a verb. So it's too fashion. You're listening to Wardrobe Crisis with Claire Press. Join me every week as we look at sustainability, ethics, and the business and madness of fashion. Hello again. How's everyone doing this week? I've got such a good interview for you today. What does it mean to leave voluntarily your homeland to make a new creative life in another country? How might the place you left behind and the one that you chose to build a future in collide in your work? In the case of fashion designer Akira Isagawa, his Japanese sensibilities run really deep. So from his long fascination with Japanese textiles and the kimono to his takes on minimalism and recycling, repurposing and mending. And you're going to hear him talk about the ancient art of repairing broken ceramics. It's called kintsugi. But Australia provided Akira with a certain creative freedom and expansiveness that he yearned for as a young man growing up in a quite conservative city. It was fun here in fashion in the 80s. <laughs> when Akira left Kyoto in 1986, he said he didn't know a soul and no one from his life back home knew anything about Australia. His peers who dreamed of moving away from Kyoto talked of Europe and America. But Akira discovered that he could study in Sydney and potentially work here, so he packed his bag with some of his mother's old kimonos and moved. He enrolled in East Sydney Technical College to study fashion. Now, 35 years later, Akira Isagawa is an Australian national treasure who's been the subject of major museum retrospectives at the National Gallery of Victoria and the Powerhouse in Sydney who's designed costumes for the ballet and seen his work in all the big glossies and championed internationally by people like the late Italian Vogue fashion editor Anna Piaggi and the iconic Mrs B, Joan Burstein from Browns in London. But he's also ridiculously humble and authentic. Really, he's I want to describe him as more of an artist than anything else. He's got this this very great sensitivity for how he sees the world and and also how he seals the soul, or he talks about little personalities of fabric and clothes. It's very beautiful. In recent years, he's begun to frame all this in the things that have so long defined his practice in terms of sustainability, which is so nice to hear. I could not be more delighted to bring you this lovely chat with my friend, the wonderful Akira Isagawa. I do love him. He's the best. So let's get into it. And don't forget to... Get in touch on social media and let us know what you think of it. You can find the show notes, as usual, at thewardrobecrisis.com. Akira, welcome to the Wardrobe Crisis podcast. This yeah. is fun. We've been trying to do this for years, actually. Yeah, I think. Well, it's quite a number of years, hasn't it, really? Yeah, so finally, yay! It's <laughs> finally, nice. Finally, yay! I'm happy we're doing it in person. That's a treat, right? <laughs> totally, 100%. So it was worse away, I think. Ah, oh, thank you. I wanted to start with this because I was just thinking back to, we've known each other for a long time, but I was thinking back to when we first spoke publicly about sustainability. And it was at the Australian Fashion Summit in Melbourne. It was just before the <sighs> pandemic, do you remember? And we were on stage yeah. with some people who've been on this podcast, Christina Dean and Patrick Duffy, and Eva Cruz was there as well. But I asked you to open this session, which was about waste. And I'm going to read the question again to you now because I reckon it was a good one. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so yeah, great. what I said at that summit was, 
fashion's waste crisis is globally significant, with large amounts of clothing and textiles ending up in landfill everywhere, as we know. But we weren't always so wasteful, were we? Tell us about your childhood in Japan when throwing clothes away just didn't happen. Oh, well, simply it just didn't happen. I suppose there was a philosophy that which my family, or particularly came from my mother, really. Yeah, I mean, she taught me so much. She mended everything. She mended the socks. She mended actually the even underwear. <laughs> Things like that. So I, I didn't experience object, particularly clothing in this matter, being so in the way and being so, it, it didn't happen simply. So that's how I actually learned to, you know. Because of necessity, because it was too expensive to buy new things, or because of a cultural or a, I'm going to say, era-specific, because I think generally in previous times, in your grandmother's time, there was more of a reverence or a respect for stuff. Mm. Yeah, well, I must say, actually, I grew up in late 60s, really. And look, you know, economy in Japan wasn't really experiencing such a tough time. And so therefore, I imagine that I, my mother she had a choice uh, to buy something new. Or, or actually like a save. So it was a conscious decision she made. And I think uh, uh, it's also to do with actually herself being born in the 1930s. She survived, you know, uh, even though actually like in Kyoto, it, well, that's where she actually grew up, didn't get bombed. You know, so that she didn't experience such a nasty, sad, like a vicious or, you know, how family family have to be separated under certain circumstances. It didn't occur to her. But however, there was definitely actually a sense of poverty, I think, Mm. particularly late 1940s. Mm. So maybe to do with that, I mean, never discussed that with her, though. So, yeah. You lost her, didn't you, in 2000 and something? Yeah, she left 2001 and then she was 72. Yeah, yeah. So I thought actually she, like we expect someone to to live till 90s in these days. My father is just turned 91. Has he? Yeah, yeah. So so that's what I expected to see her being like well, Mm -hmm. like, you know, so so there's a lot of actually things that matters that are unspoken. Yeah. Isn't that, I think, I bet listeners, many listeners will relate if there are older people in their family who don't tell them things about how things were during times of hardship. Of course, you're speaking about Japan, but I see it with my my husband's grandfather. He never tells us what it was like during those times because I think generationally there was a feeling that if you had a traumatic experience, you didn't sit down and talk about it. You kind of tried to put it aside and move on. And so there's that, but then there's also this thing that you want to ask your mum things and you can't, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, there will never, well, my mother at least actually never say anything unless you specifically ask, Mm. you know, yes. And also given actually like, you know, we are separated in a way physically, you know, I came to Australia when I was 21 and uh, and I used to go back. So however, you know, once a year and then when I'm in Japan, like usually I catch up my friend or and I stay there only for one week. So, yeah. So I feel it. You've got so much to try and cram in. I mean, it's it's, it's, we've actually both (laughs) chose to be geographically isolated in this this country, Australia, (laughs) even though we're very international and we like culture. (laughs) What are we doing? One more thing about that event. I I remember I had to talk you into it. You were like, what? No. But 
but I encouraged you to wear a kimono on stage, didn't I? As a prop. Which I did. You did? Which I did. Yeah, I had, I've got a number of kimono actually at least to choose from. So I thought that the one that actually black is, is a classic enough. And then please, I thought I would please everyone by wearing black, I thought. But there <laughs> so was a reason. I wanted you to do it so that we could use the kimono as a talking point. As, oh, got it. Do you remember? Okay. Because if we talk about sustainability and low waste, for example, the kimono as a design idea is a terrific piece of zero waste technology. It's so true. Yeah, they are made within a specific actually number of meters. I should notice on top of my head, but the kimono makers actually, they buy material, but then the material is already woven in a way that there is a zero waste. So it's not just by introducing new technology, but it's just this is a culture that would existed for hundreds of years, centuries. So when I learned that, I felt quite comforting because I just felt, oh, yes, so this is something that I learned from my mother. So it went quite well with me. <laughs> Tell us the story about how you, what you packed to arrive in Australia in 1986. Yeah. 1986 was definitely a turning point because uh, coming to Australia is, is, well, considered as an outrageous decision because back then, particularly in the mid-80s, that Australia wasn't really known uh, to Japan yet. In fact, actually, uh, like few friends who decided to go abroad, they made, made a decision to go to Europe or they made a decision to go to the United States or no one decided to come to, to Australia. So why is that? So that was a question that, that everybody asked me. Yeah. I was aware that if I had come to Australia, I thought I would be able to work. There is a visa. It's called Working Holiday Visa. Mm. And uh, this visa, I knew it because I read about it, allow you to find a job pretty much straight after you arrive, which yeah, I, that's what I did. How you know, old yeah. were you? So I turned 21 and uh, in December, and that's when I decided to buy a ticket. And then I left Japan end of February. But what end was in your February. suitcase? Yeah, I didn't have a suitcase. I had an, actually uh, like a knapsack. But didn't you bring all your mum's kimonos? I, had uh, I wanted actually to have something actually from my home. You know, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, sure, I had a few things. But I have to actually say that a kimono is a perfect item to travel with because you can fold into a little square. There's no curve or no darts. So you can pack a few kimonos you know, in a tiny little, not suitcase, even knapsack. So I had my mother with me in a way. <laughs> yeah. But then you did something extraordinary for the times with those kimonos, which were family heirlooms, some of them barely worn, right? Because yes. what did you do with them? <laughs> so um, I think I, I was actually a naughty one in the family, really, because uh, I did something outrageous, I didn't tell my mother. In fact, I haven't told actually a lot of people about this. I'm sorry. <laughs> I haven't told her about it, yeah, because I felt bad by doing that. I started to actually modify things because I was always conscious about actually how I look, like particularly actually like when I turn like age such as 16, 17 and start buying my own clothes. 
And uh, when I came to Australia, I, first thing I did, I had to find a job, so which I did. And then also, actually, I have to have a look around and see what fashion is like in Sydney. What and was it like, cut off denim shorts? I went to uh, Paddington Market. That was the first spot I decided to visit. And then I worked along Oxford Street and so on. And then... Uh, CBD area, and then I found this extremely expensive boutique called Trellini, which carried um, extremely precious but expensive Japanese brand, such oh. as Kobuna Gans and Yoji Moto and so on. Yeah. I wasn't able to actually purchase it because I couldn't afford it. Um, then Paddington Market, I just felt actually I could do it myself, really. I'm sorry, but I never done it before but then I thought I could do it so I did I started actually chop, cutting up and chopping up and all the fabric that I purchased on including my mother's and so that's why I didn't tell my my mother about that actually. but in fact um, now yeah. looking at that from the lens of <laughs> the lens yeah. of the modernity of upcycling you would say that you were here's a thought right before you came I was thinking about Martin Margiela I know that you love com and I know that some Japanese designers we've talked about before, but <laughs> Martin Margiela was the proto-upcycler, right? Like the first yeah. big name to... 100%. Not recycle, upcycle, to 100%. reinvent previous collections into new ones, potentially then definition-wise of a higher value, yeah. and then make things out of weird gloves. I mean, yeah. he... The gloves yeah. are socks. Socks. Uh, yeah, I love Elsie's uh, sock sweaters. Yeah. But actually, <laughs> I just thought it was super interesting to think about how the evolution of the coolness of upcycling has happened, because now everybody's an upcycler. But actually, if you take the word away, innovating with existing materials has always happened. I think what Margiela did wasn't, in fact, groundbreaking. I think it was um, something that uh, a lot of people actually felt, actually, uh, well, we do that anyway. And, as uh, students and things uh, as well. Totally, yeah. I mean, I've, when I found Martin Margiela's garment first time in my life, it wasn't actually in, here in Australia. It was in Japan, actually. When I was in Tokyo, there was a little tiny shop. It wasn't actually even his store. Like, you know, it was before he opened his own boutique. Yeah, and that I felt, oh, my God, you can do that. Meaning, upcycle your, your clothes or, or my, your mother's or whoever, your relatives or your friend's clothes, and then wear it for yourself, but then also actually commercialize it too. Mm. And that, that was something I learned by just looking at his clothes on the rack. And I thought, well, oh, there's a number of garments. This is a, a shop and it's open to public and then people can... That was your moment, a light In bulb fact, moment. it's acceptable, really. Yeah, it, you don't have to do it all to yourself. You can make it available to others. Yeah, so that wow, was actually really great. Wow, that's amazing. Great. All right, mm. I'm going to come back to that time yeah. later on, if you will let me, in the 80s yeah. in Australia, because I'm interested. But I wanted to start really with a more recent thing. So I was at your beautiful show at Sydney Fashion Week, which is weird that it happened, but it did. In the middle of COVID, it was fine, now it's not, etc. It, <laughs> it was May of 2021. And you, right. Yeah, right. you called that collection Fragmented. Yeah. Why? Yeah. It's uh, because um, I suppose actually, like, uh, there's bits and pieces 
of actually wasteful material that was just lying around in the studio. Like offcuts, uh, things that you had yeah, hoarded. <laughs> little offcuts, not even like, you know, sufficient shape or measurement to make into a garment. No, because I'm thinking know. of all the little triangle pieces yeah. together in a coat. You see, I don't throw away anything really. Yeah, so I've got actually quite a few boxes of uh, those little tiny offcuts. Some things you get out of the bin. Yeah, that's it, exactly. Yeah. What happens in my studios when I get like seamstress coming in or the cutters to help me out cutting fabric, when I'm not around, I realise that they throw the offcuts away. And when they, they leave in the afternoon and I go to the bins, <laughs> my own bins, and not like someone else's, like my own bins. <laughs> And you so it's them. totally hygienic, you know, I'm not going through someone else's food, for example, and then go through what they've thrown away. And rescue it. And totally, yes, I rescue quite a bit, actually. Why? I, I don't know, actually, I just feel like maybe those little offcuts got their own little souls as well, you know. Yeah, so I do not want to actually uh, give them like harsh treatment. To those little babies. I'm sorry, I'm sounds like actually quite spooky. Like you know, calling like an offcuts babies. <laughs> but they were I feel they are my babies. So I want to save them. Oh wow. Yeah. Okay. Fragmented <laughs> took the form of a series of garments <laughs> hanging on racks in an art gallery. And each had these little canvas labels on, they were pinned, and you had handwritten descriptions on these. I took pictures of them, still got them on my phone. Here's an example. Hooded jacket with zip. Constructed with vintage OB interfacing, hand washed and patched, vintage OB patchwork in gold, silver and orange. Yeah, right. Okay. Yeah. Well, um, there is another hundreds of garments. No, you know, in just exhibition. a few. There's a few. That's where I'm at. I feel like, generally speaking, that I rather produce less and then just to work on a piece that which means a lot not only to myself, but then hopefully to others too, yeah. So that was an idea behind it. So I just wanted to actually sit down and then write about a, a garment, that what they are, particularly thinking about exhibition, you know, because we've got to communicate it somehow. So that was the idea behind it. And I thought, what am I going to write on? And I thought, well, of course, I'm there's a lot of fabric here. So I just grabbed those, uh, like a vintage kimono, it's in fact, they were actually uh, interfacing oh, yeah. of obi. You know how obi is quite stiff? And when you unpick it, there's an inside, there is actually very stiff cotton inside and with a canvas. So I cut canvas into little squares and I use it as a notebook. So beautiful. Yeah. Oh, let's talk about the jewellery. How did you make the jewellery? Yeah. I had uh, this brilliant interns from TAFE. I met them. And yeah, there's a few interns actually in, uh, <laughs> at the exhibition. Yeah. Charlie, that was his name. Actually, Charlie um, had a two 3D printer at home, which he invested. And uh, he told me about actually uh, his project at the TAFE. And he showed me what he made. But uh, what I was interested in was what was left over? I mean, you know, he made something brilliant, but then it was, I thought it was inevitable that there is a leftover plastic. I mean, that's what yeah. 3D printers made out of, or three, mm -hmm. the pro object that actually made out of 3D printers are all plastic. And I said to him, actually, can you please bring whatever you didn't end up using? And so he did. 
And, and you that, painted it. That's where idea of actually uh, uh, making accessory came from. You can mm. make real beauty out of rubbish. Oh gosh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's <good. laughs> when I moved to uh, um, Marikville from Surrey Hills. Actually, because we were in Surrey Hills for more than ten years. Yeah, and I remember. Then, uh, yeah, that's where we initially met. Yeah. Was working Surrey Hills back yeah. then. Yeah. But anyway, it's now. It's about twelve years ago. We uh, moved to Marikville and then to learn about this uh, little quirky in the suburb, in the West suburb and uh, and I've discovered this um, junkyard. Yeah, I call it junkyard, reverse garbage. Oh, yeah, Kind of a little, oh, it's actually not little, in fact, no, it's, actually. it's a quite a big, okay. vast, in fact. We should halt uh, this podcast. We're recording this podcast in my house. I feel like halting it so I can go and get you a tapestry I rescued from reverse garbage. I'll show you later. Did but you, also I bought, because I'm a hoarder, yeah. I can't help it. I found in there, I have upholstered a chair out of these. So it was swatch books from a very expensive Italian imported silks things. They were just throwing it. them Did away. You find but it? there's so many of them and there's they're little pieces that, so you'd have to patchwork. Yeah. But they oh. are so perfectly beautiful. But they were just they're yeah. in books, yes. Yeah? So you have yeah. to cut them out and then they've got a bit of glue yeah, on so you only get a little there's bit some treasures but they're there. incredible fabric. Yeah. yeah and treasures. people just turf well, luckily yeah. they don't turf them out, they take them there. Yeah. Oh well mm. I discovered that spot when I moved into Marrickville. And my God, it's amazing. I want to tell you something funny, Akira. Mm. For a fashion legend, which you are, there's precious little information about you online. When people, when I research <laughs> guests, I normally find a bazillion interviews and documents and things they've said. You, no, nothing. So considering you've been doing this for 30 years and winning prizes and having giant exhibitions and you're a ledge, and yet very elusive. But most of what I can find involves newspaper articles from here and they all start the same way about how crappy your studio is in Marrickville as if they, and how noisy and how there's aeroplanes and it's cold. Yeah. And I feel like, what do they expect you to be in a marble palace and double play? <laughs> That's quite funny, actually. Yeah. <laughs> in fact, uh, I, I was wondering whether I actually were able to do this in my studio and the answer was, no way. But too noisy. Too noisy. <laughs> it's so noisy. But, but I just ask you that because oh, I think no it's way. funny. It's very, it's very uh, people presume because you make such, preciously beautiful garments and perhaps some of those people who interviewed you got married in one of your incredible dresses I think they presume more of an untouchable clean white room but that's yeah. not what you're like you're the artist yeah. at the table yeah yeah um in your fingerless gloves because it's cold I've seen you yeah you're not into pristine uh, no no that's all like it's very glove, right? very difficult to actually keep a place tidy if we we what well, we deal with actually basically a garbage really <laughs> you know, so how can we make the place so pristine and tidy? We've got a full of garbage. We've got full of garbage in the studio. They're all precious garbage, you know. All right, let's talk <laughs> about the film that you made for the show. So I cried. I thought it was so beautiful. It was directed by a guy called Raphael, Raphael. May. He's also a composer, and it shows. I mean, I, I hadn't understood that he's the one playing the piano in the film until you told me after. But tell us yeah. about, you've shot some of that in your studio. Yeah. Tell us about the fashion film you made to go with Fragmented. Yeah. The idea of actually showing the collection was um, something static that which was on court hangers. 
at a gallery. And uh, I didn't want to actually take a chance of uh, having, like, say, for example, 20 models and then having, mm. like, 100 guests and then dealing with the logistics side of it, uh, particularly at that time. We were talking about June 2021. So the decision was made by me and then uh, I approached actually a number of people and uh, see what we could do. And I've known Raphael 25 years, more than 25 years, and, and he composed uh, one particular music for my show in the uh, year, um, it was actually oh, nine, yeah. 1997 or eight, actually, yeah. There was a collection called Botanica, was just shown Australian Fashion Week. I know it, I was there. Yeah, yeah, so... Uh, flowers, so amazing we, flowers t- on yeah. the hair. That's it, yeah. yeah. So we've known each other for quite some time, and so... We didn't have to actually talk so much, yes. So he took it on and then he said, I never actually done this because he's a composer. He never directed a film or even something little short. So for him it was new. But anyway, we did it. And uh, uh, what was actually, uh, I felt was quite emotional too. And what was actually quite charming and then also emotional was having people in the film that we've known quite well. And uh, like, for example... Christian. Christian, actually, I've known more than 30 years. And interns that who's been actually uh, on and off working with me uh, for more than a couple of years. Mm. And then Raphael himself, clients, like long-term clients, whom I met again more than 20 years ago. Christian, who you mentioned, Christian Lehman, she's an artist... She makes incredible sort of collaged worlds, like little three-dimensional yeah. magical yeah. houses and yeah. <laughs> worlds. They're beautiful. I always wanted to buy one. But yeah. you met her and she a paid 90, you with art, right? We've known each other for long. And then there's a, a one particular moment. I remember it would have been 2004, 2005. We had actually... a. Um, I say we only because there was a collaboration. We had an exhibition at the National Gallery of Victoria. Oh, yeah, I and that. Uh, yeah, what I call her work for this specific project, like a series of little people. And, uh, oh, I know doll, what you mean, the dolls. The dolls. She found the dolls in, at, uh, well, the market, yeah. at the market. And then uh, she started Flat dressing them dolls. up. Yeah, yeah. And as you said, it was all a bit three-dimensional because she found not only a fabric, but it's like a little found mm. object or whatever, the unconventional. <laughs> uh, and then grew onto these little figures. They really were your babies. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, okay, so yeah. let's talk about some of these extraordinary women who've supported your work or inspired you or helped you. I was thinking about Mrs. B, Joan Burstein, who is, of course, the uh, she was incre- legendary yeah. founder of Browns, not yeah. working in Browns anymore because she's in her 90s. Uh, we've got That's mutual right. friends. I know that she's been a bit sick, but she's better now. But how yeah. did she help you? Yeah. Gee, for listeners who don't know about Brown's, iconic London store that in the 70s when Joan started it was the first to stock things like, I'm going to say, Missoni and possibly Zandra Rhodesy things, but amazing Don, I don't know. Like, or John Galliano. Well, she bought his whole graduate collection in 1984. Apparently. The whole thing. She, She basically saw him at uni and went, that one. 
Yeah, and then I have actually his entire collection window even. So that's what she told me. I always wish I'd I'd interviewed Joan. Joan's got connections with Australians. She comes here with Albert Morris, who used to be a close collaborator of Karl Lagerfeld. And I've sat down many times with Joan, or not many times, but sometimes with Joan and listened to her talk about her amazing fashion life. And I never interviewed her, I'm sad. She'd be a lovely podcast, wouldn't she? Oh, she was amazing. How did, how did she help you? Yeah, I met her in Sydney. I remember that year actually. I wasn't. I'm not big about that because it was really a moment in my career. Really, it was 1997 in May, and I met her backstage where I actually had a fashion show as a part of Australian Fashion Week. And uh, as she came to me and said, "Your show made actually my trip worthwhile." Yes. And I just felt, "Oh my God, is that real?" Yeah. Uh, so she came to see me following day and she said, let me write order. And I pretty much actually, uh, just like, uh, you know, the story she told me about John Galliano, uh, she pretty much bought every single garment that which I shown on wow. the wrong way. Yeah. Was so that when he had the red socks? Met, that's how I met. Was that, that was when he couldn't year, afford shoes that, that and he had a, red socks? That, that was a year after. Actually, she bought a collection she told me about Rep Fox, though, however, but she didn't buy that particular collection. Um, she bought the collection the year after. So yeah. tell us about the Red Sox. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so that was actually first year Fashion Week, 1996, when I was invited by Simon Locke, who was the founder of Fashion Week, to be part of a group show called New Generation. And then there was actually four other designers. And so we all had actually like three minutes. And then it was 15 looks. And I said, oh, okay, great, 15 looks are manageable. So I just start, uh, back then actually I didn't employ anyone, I had to start cutting and sewing, actually sample collection myself. Wow. And I had all the looks ready and I did fitting and I said, great. Then it was actually last minute thing really, because I realized, yeah, oh my God, I didn't organize or haven't organized shoes. Then I realized actually I needed 15 pair of shoes I thought, what would be the option? <laughs> because the <laughs> reason I did everything on my own was I couldn't afford to employ people, so I couldn't afford shoes either. So the socks was the way to go, you know, because there were maybe six dollars a pair or whatever the Gowings. Gowings was an old uh, department store Gowings, here, wasn't yes. it? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. God, yeah. yeah. I came to a show of yours many years later where the models wore red socks in ode to that. It was in a <laughs> warehouse in Surrey Hills and... Um, yeah. It was a beautiful moment and everyone yeah. was covered in flowers, weren't they? Yeah, that that was, uh, I suppose, actually, we could have said retrospective. Yeah. yeah. But I like the idea of the socks because it's, again, exemplifying what you're very good at, which is beauty out of constraint. Yeah. <laughs> like be- better than having a load of old shoes that you bought from somewhere. I don't know. Yeah. I think better. All right. What about, yeah. we talked about Joan Burstein. Let's talk about Marion Hume and then send this to her. So Marion Hume oh. is a mutual friend of ours, but she's a British editor and now film writer. But she came here in the 90s to edit Australian Vogue, which is quite a story we should get her on. And then went on to be a pioneer in sustainability journalism way before I was. She used to work for the Ethical Fashion Initiative with Simone Cipriani before I did. But I really look up to Marion. I think she's an amazing force of nature. She loved you. She came to Australia, could have been actually 1996, I don't know, but I met her in 1997. Again, in May at Australian Fashion Week. In fact, she came to my studio 
because uh, she wanted to actually find out whether there's something that she could use for a shoot she was organizing for her first edition of Australian Vogue. And uh, I show her actually a number of different type of fabric that I had in the studio. And uh, most of them have been the kimono textile. And then she said, actually, oh, well, more and more and more. She wanted to see everything. <laughs> yeah, more, more, more. So just a range of like, you know, basically I show everything I had. And she selected actually like a probably about three different kind of vintage kimono textile, actually all bright colours and have it ready within a few days. Naomi Campbell? Oh, well, I didn't know actually Naomi Campbell was going to wear it. Is that what she it was didn't then? Tell me. Yeah. Yes. She didn't tell me. <laughs> yeah, that is it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Anyway, she told me she needed a dress within, I think uh, that it was like a two days or three days or something. When you look back at those opportunities and the people that backed you and knew that what you're doing was terrific, you could have presumably gone out there and tried to scale. Yeah. I'm interested in your approach to slow and the way yeah. that you've sort of resisted through 30 years of this yeah. doing what everyone else does. Because everyone else at that time in 90s fashion in Australia was quite explosive. There was a lot going on. Yeah. There were some names that became very commercial here. I'm not sure that many travelled like you did in the way of international, of people respecting you in, internationally. But certainly here, there were big commercial brands that became high street names and wrecked in all the cash. You never did it. No, I never, no. I think what it was um, is that I felt that there is actually a, that enough clothes. You know, when actually we go to a store and then we source inspirations, store like a vintage store or market, we need inspiration. And as well as actually also contemporary places like the boutique, it's run by Anna Colette, for example, in Paris. That was a hit. Maria Luisa. There's a number of boutiques I remember visiting, like old and new. And after actually seeing so many clothes, you know, you feel, my God, there's a, there's enough of everything, you know. Like, why am I going to add more? Did you really feel like that even then? Uh, I felt quite overwhelmed by it, really, to be honest. Yeah. Though I was very excited to see the beauty mm-hmm. in in industry, really. We need inspiration. We need to have actually, uh, like, you know, surrounded by something that it's like gorgeous and, and like wonderful things but at the same time you know when you have like a meal and you if you have like truffle for example truffle a truffle is is such a fragrant and then such a rich expensive the ingredients you can actually mix into the pasta dish or whatever makes everything so rich and but when you actually eat so much of it then uh, you just you want to take it easy and then said, oh, my God, I just wanted to have just a, An apple. something so <laughs> simple. And then also you want you don't want to eat so much either because you had so much already. While actually like, we, we want to be surrounded by beauty, but at the same time, actually, we seek, seriously, we seek simplicity in life. Um, so I think that was a conscious decision I made. Wow. That is such an interesting way to look at this because I tend to look at it as the gluttony of the stuff that doesn't have as much beauty, like all the high street churn and burn and not very interesting clothes that are out there in such quantities. But you were feeling that way even about all the beauty, that there's just too much of everything. 
Well, I think, <laughs> I think uh, um, I'm not talking about now actual work. I'm talking about like, you know, how I live, really. Yeah. I think if I have the, like one bowl, that which maybe I could just have a like, you know, miso soup and a bowl of rice or something mm. with like chopped tofu in it. Uh, we all need a protein, but the chopped <laughs> tofu. <laughs> and a pay, one pair with chopstick. That's enough for me. <laughs> but, but actually, this is a very, this is a, a super interesting conversation to have about fashion. The, this idea of, you talked about simplicity, but there's also an idea of sufficiency. Yeah, well, we've got to be sufficient. Like, I mean, in order to actually live simply, I've got to be incredibly organised. Because <laughs> otherwise, actually, like, we end up actually like being starved to death. <laughs> no, but is there, yeah, is, yeah. There's, there's something in this idea yeah. of where we draw the line between want, yeah. want and need and right. what, what... Sufficiency, okay. Yeah, but also what excess even an excess of beauty does to us. Like, yeah. it's fascinating listening to you because you, you're you talking about appreciating all the gorgeousness, but you just yeah. feel like there's too much, like it's a, it's a lot, it's too much truffle. Mm, too much, yeah, <laughs> too well, I, well, okay, talk, talking about clothes, that the act of mending is something worthwhile investing your time on. Oh, it's like Japanese uh, kintsugi, I don't know if you're familiar with um, this word kintsugi. That's kin mean gold, and tsugi meaning like a kind of mending. When you buy ceramic, it doesn't matter if you're precious or not, but the idea is when it's it's get broken, then uh, you mend it with something that's uh, quite precious, like gold, and then you are actually adding value to it, mm. you know, so... I suppose the reason I'm talking about it is I think all I feel what I need is actually just a, maybe just a handful of items when it comes to fashion or food to, you know, how I talk about it. Mm. And I know when it gets broken or damaged and then we spend the time to mend it so they survive rather than actually look to see what's next, you know. In fact, what's next is you need to look at yourself and then see how you can spend your time. And that's what's next come from. And like yeah. the idea that next could be an evolution of what went before rather than chucking everything out and getting a new thing. That's what's like, a hundred percent, yeah. I'm hoping actually what's next for just not only just a few of us, but all of us is that let's invest our time and mend everything we need to mend around <laughs> <Yes>. us. <laughs> hey, do you remember when we were going to make, um, this was your idea, but I was obsessed with it and wanted to make it into a film. The one dress, getting women around the world to wear one dress. Yeah. Just the same dress, but different women. Yeah, yeah. That's an evolution that. of a... So yeah. one of your dresses, That's just right. to, for it to travel, and yeah. then it morphs with every wearer, right, into a different mood. Yeah, yeah, worn by actually different women in different parts but of the world. But just one simple dress, probably white. on the same dress, yeah. same dress, <laughs> yes. Oh, I'm, my God, I remember that uh, idea. We should do it. Yeah. I promise yeah. you that we're going to come back to the early years. So I found this old interview with you where you were describe, asked to describe yourself in five words. And you said, this is not five words, mate. This is like 12. More. Anyway. Yeah, yeah. okay. You yeah. said, I thought this was very you. I see myself as carrying an antonymic character. Yeah, right. <laughs> realist, conformist, non-conformist and dreamer, brackets, day slash night. 
<laughs> Gosh, I remember this actually interview. Yeah, I do really do. Yeah. <laughs> I, I love it. And I'm not going to ask dream you to elaborate. Dream day and night. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> dream can occur daytime. Realist dreamer, conformist, oh non-conformist, <laughs> day and night. But you were also asked what dream you want to still fulfill and I thought that I would ask you that again, but ask you to do it by going back to when you came here in, in the early 80s and you, we haven't really talked about how you studied, but you studied at East Sydney Tech. Yeah. What was your dream then? Yeah. Perhaps it's a two-part closing question. Yeah. What was your dream then? And, um, and how would you answer this old question about what dream you still want to fulfill? Yeah, well, dream actually in then, that was late 80s, actually when I was studying at TAFE, well, to be able to actually stay and base myself in this country. Therefore, it was important for me to, to gain the skill or experience, whatever I was able to actually obtain through internship or, you know, those students do now. I mean, I was once a student too. So, so my dream was to get skill and then to get experience and then actually like establish something that to actually allow me to do what I want to do. Why did you want to yeah. not be in Japan? I have to ask you that. As yeah. a person who left, I left Britain and I didn't, didn't really mean to. <laughs> oh, you did, did not you? really. No. I, it wasn't a, it was a conscious decision. No, it's a sort of a string of accidents and now. Right, right. But, but what, what, why? You talked about how you yeah. came here, but why did you want to be not where you come from? Yeah. So I think what it was is... Um, Growing up in Kyoto, well, no, I'm not a, a person that who came from big city, international city like Tokyo. Uh, Kyoto is rather conservative, you know, quite a humble type of a city, really. Tiny, really. Population of one million. One million, yeah. Mm. It's a kind of place that, like, you know, next door neighbor keep eye on you <laughs> and then tell, like, my family, or oh, what's your son was up to? I saw or, him cutting up your kimonos. You know? <laughs> Uh, yeah, um, and I knew that I was a black sheep in the family. Like I tried my best, but then I, I knew that I wasn't meant to be in Kyoto mm. somehow. Though right. actually, I do appreciate actually yeah. you know history, you the traditional yeah. aspect of it. But uh, but so yeah. When you came here, your dream yeah. when you were a fashion student was yeah. to get skills and stay here and build yeah. something. So, what dream do you still want to fulfill? Um, so really my dream is actually like, this is a perfect opportunity to say this because, mm. uh, um, we, as a part of our, not only fashion either, like part of it, like world that we see that there's a lot to, to do really, not to be able to contribute in a way that the world could exist another decades to come. So that's part of my dream. I don't know, like being like realistic or not realistic but at least we should be able to voice it yeah so that's uh, that's what it is for me i think i touched that subject a little bit at the australian fashion week yeah so that's where my passion is really so. do you want me to remind you what your answer was in that old interview can you actually yeah definitely can you actually tell me yeah it was being inspired in 10 20 30 years to come Oh, my God. That's nice. Oh, really? Do you know what I say? Yeah, you're, you're a good interview. <laughs> oh, for doing gosh. This one. 
<laughs> yeah. I think what it is is now is a bit more, I, I feel a bit more specifically able to articulate yeah, yeah, yeah. what it is. But whereas actually back then, the inspiration as a whole for me was worth, worth living. Mm. But now I feel I've become much clearer and hopefully actually smarter. <laughs> it's one good thing about getting old. <laughs> Akira Isagawa, this has been the most delightful interview. I want to only interview you. Maybe we'll do a whole podcast series of just this. What do you reckon? <laughs> Yay! Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. You can find the show notes for each episode over on our website, www.thewardrobecrisis.com. And that's where you can also sign up for our free sustainable fashion newsletters. I hope you've enjoyed the show. I'd love you to help us spread the word. Tell a friend, share on social media, or leave us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. It really helps new listeners find us on the app. You can get in touch with us on social media. The show is on Instagram at The Wardrobe Crisis. And I'm on there too. And on Twitter, I'm at Mrs. Press. Because I love you. Because I love you.